Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. My name is Jane Howard. I'm Deputy Arts and Culture Editor at The Conversation, and I'm really delighted to be here with Kylie Maslin today. Uh, before we start, I just want to acknowledge that we are gathered here today on Ghana country, and I pay my respect to their, their elders past, present and future. Uh, Adelaide City has been a gathering place for tens of thousands of years for the Ghana people and a storytelling place, and it's a real privilege to be able to extend that history here this week. Uh, so Kylie Maslin is a writer and a critic who lives in Adelaide. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, Mianjin, Kill Your Darlings, The Adelaide Review, Crikey, and this festival season she has been writing for In Daily's new art section, In Review. In 2018, she was the recipient of the Kill Your Darlings New Critics Award and Show Me Where It Hurts, Essays on Invisible Illnesses is her first book which was published last year. It was shortlisted at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and was named among the best books of 2020 by The Guardian and The Saturday Paper. Could everyone please join me in welcoming Kylie? Thank you. Thank you. One of the things that is really interesting about Kylie's book is that every, well, not every chapter, but a lot of the chapters open with content warnings. Mm. And so I thought that would be a really great place to start today's session, sort of talking about what are content warnings and what are some of the things that might come up today that people in the audience might want to be aware of. Yeah, so uh, it was important to me that chapters where I was talking about mental illness or... Um, uh, lived experience with a number of different traumas that um, readers were aware of those from the um, from the get-go. Um, my friends and I who have similar experiences have often kind of given each other a warning of like, oh, we got to page 200 and then pff, there it is. Like, um, So it was really, it felt like an act of care to readers of the book that they knew what to expect. So yeah, in that, uh, uh, in that, um, Sorry, I also have a <laughs> cognitive uh, issue sometimes. In that spirit? In that spirit, thank you. Um, we will likely be touching on um, topics around mental illness, uh, obviously chronic illness, pain, disability, um, but also going through some difficult experiences with, um, uh, with medicine and hospitals in particular. Um, I wanted to come up with some sort of joke that if you were here for Gary Disher, you, you will still experience blood and horror and stuff from my life. Um, but, yeah, thankfully you will do so with warning. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so your book opens with people ask, how are you? And so that's how I want to start today. And I don't mean it in the sort of way of general niceties and the way we just sort of do it throughout our day. But how are you today? I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> it's been a big week um, for someone who doesn't go out very much. Uh, being here every day has been both completely lovely and energising, but also a lot. Um, I've also had th th four medical appointments this week in between other things, so uh, talking about, like, you know, moving between spaces from, um, uh, you know, talking, like, listening to some really beautiful writers talk about their process or to get context of the world that we're currently living in and then to be uh, talking about my childhood with my psychologist or... Um, what's wrong with my feet, with my podiatrist? This is a very disjointed way of living, yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book is memes and how memes yes. can be a really great way to communicate. So how are you feeling today in memes? I was saying to Kylie, I'm feeling very lemon, it's Wednesday. <laughs> so how are you feeling? Um, I am feeling... I'm feeling very the Drake 
meme <laughs> that comes from his... Um, I should, I, I'll explain. Jane asked me to explain what a meme is and I put it... I had a... My editor also asked me to do that. <laughs> um, so... Because it's something that people in the chronic illness community lean on a lot because we are always tired and often don't have the words to express how we're properly feeling. So uh, chronic illness memes in particular are simple visual means of conveying complicated emotions and frustrations, as well as a way to add humour to a heavy conversation. So using memes, images or videos that are already widely shared with context tailored to illness communities allows those of us who feel socially isolated by circumstances beyond our control to connect with the broader zeitgeist. Um, so there, there's an old film clip of Drake's where he's like, no, like this. Um, and uh, in promoting the book text... I worked with a text uh, marketing team to make some memes. <laughs> um, and that was one of them. It was like uh, when my cousin says, um, uh, oh, my friend quit dairy and her period pain went away. And you're like, Ugh. And then um, my best friend said, I'm sorry you're feeling that way. I'll send you a tub of ice cream. And that's like this. Um, and my best friend has flown from Melbourne to be here today and getting to spend time with her has felt very much like that. So um, that's how I'm feeling this morning. Great. Um, I'm going to ask Kylie to read a bit of her book for us and so you can get sort of a bit of a taste of what the book's like and, and what she's do doing with uh, talking about uh, culture and illness and herself. Um, so this is from a chapter called The Fetishization of Frida. Um, and it's uh, looking at the experiences of Frida Kahlo and how her work has been commercialised um, sort of beyond recognition, really, from the, from the initial aims of her work, which was to express her... Um, experiences with pain and disability. The celebrated artist Frida Kahlo had lifelong experience of illness, trauma and chronic pain. At six, she contracted polio. She spent nine months in bed and was left with a number of incapacitating reminders of the disease. Her right leg muscles atrophied and failed to develop, which created a leg length imbalance that caused pelvic misalignment and, as a result, curvature of the spine. Then, at 16, Carlo was in a serious accident. A streetcar trolley hit the bus she was travelling on, causing significant and disabling damage to her body. She suffered multiple fractures from her clavicle down to her feet. Her right foot was crushed, both shoulders and ankles were dislocated, and she was impaled by a trolley's metal handrail through her left hip and pelvis. She was not expected to survive. As her body tried to heal, it was left riddled with complications. Carlo would go on to endure a number of failed spinal surgeries and treatments, persistent pain and several major depressive episodes. To quell the boredom of recovery and give Carlo a canvas larger than the plastic car she had begun to draw and paint on, her father set up a customised easel. Carlo could stay in bed and paint and, using a mirror attached to the ceiling, she began to create self-portraits. Studying herself in detail while doctors continued to monitor her progress, removing one cast for the next, Carlo used her self-portraits to explore disability, body image, politics and place. She was making work that represented who she was. In the 1944 painting, The Broken Column, Carlo is poised at the front of a barren landscape. With loose flowing hair and no covering other than a white sheet over her bottom half, she stands exposed, held upright by a, surgical, by a rigid surgical harness. Past the thick belts strapped over her shoulders and torso, we see through her chest to a fractured column, which has replaced her spine. Nails pierce the skin and face of her... Sorry, nails pierce the skin of her face and body. 
Tears roll down her cheeks, but it's her eyes we're drawn to. She stares at us directly, defiantly, as though challenging us to look away. What I have known since a gynaecologist wrote it all down on a piece of paper and changed my life at 28. <laughs> I'm about to read it. I was going to read out some medical terms and I looked up last night how to pronounce them and I just don't have it in me today, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have extremely painful periods, of which there is a medical term for it, uh, and long and heavy periods when I am not medicated enough to stop cyclical, cyclical bleeding. I have had small amounts of stage one endometriosis found and removed during multiple laparoscopic surgeries. I have polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, suspected from hormonal symptoms and confirmed by ultrasounds. The combination of these conditions and the traumas associated with both lack of treatment and scarring from surgery have damaged my pelvic nerves and muscles to the extent that I am disabled. The medical term is chronic neuropathic pain. When you stub your toe, you only feel pain until your toe is healed. This acts as a warning signal, our nerves telling our brain not to do this again. You might rest your foot and take pain relief, but you know it will heal soon enough. When we experience pain for over three months, the definition of chronic pain, our bodies are at risk of peripheral or nerve sensitization. The nerves become unpredictable, continuing to fire pain signals long after the original cause of the pain has healed. In my case, although my period dysfunction is silenced by a hormonal IUD and any endometriosis had been, has been surgically removed, my pelvic nerves remain incredibly sensitive. The slightest trigger sends my pain into a flare where it takes longer and requires more care to calm the nerves back down again. The nerve endings throughout my pelvic region are on high alert at all times. They fire when I exercise, they fire when I don't exercise. They fire when I eat the wrong foods and sometimes even when I eat the right foods. They fire when it's cold, when it's windy, when it's raining and when there's a storm I can feel every lightning strike hitting every nerve. After reading a listicle on a psychology website about angry cartoon characters, because chronic pain gives you a lot of time for unexplainable deep dives, I decided my pelvic nerves are like Yosemite Sam from Looney Tunes, small but weaponized, often ill-informed, constantly muttering and plotting, quick to anger. His foe, Bugs Bunny, might fight against him, but Sam never goes away. Carlo, too, had neuropathic pain. The traumas behind it are different, but our pain has a lot in common, its most irksome characteristic being the limited ability to control it and the inability to make it go away. Rating my pain on a scale from zero to 10, zero being no pain, 10 being the worst pain imaginable, I feel fortunate when I can maintain two. Most days, thanks to my treatment plan, which includes a cocktail of medications to keep the nerves calm, my pain hovers between two and four. Beyond that, I begin to feel like I'm spinning out of control in my own body. I am resigned to the knowledge that those days will come, often without warning, but that doesn't stop me from feeling sad, frustrated, listless. My pelvic nerves are permanently nervous, and I am per per permanently nervous about them. Looking at women's stories uh, is a really big part of this book. We just had Frida Kahlo there, but you also write about women like Serena Williams and Beyonce, um, who, as Kylie writes, both underwent pretty severe complications from pregnancy. Uh, what do you get from placing yourself amongst this lineage, both historically and contemporarily? Um, good question. I think... I think it's important to do so in order to acknowledge that no story is too small to still inflict pain. Um, that there was it's something quite calming to me in a perverse way to know that um, someone as rich and successful and um, 
powerful um, as Her Royal Highness Beyonce Cardinals um, can go through these sorts of situations and uh, me living in Adelaide uh, on a low income can also go through these situations. Um, I think there's also something quite relieving about it being a, forming an almost a kind of community. Um, I think, you know, we've... Particularly in the last few days and the horrific things that we've been seeing um, in the news, uh, there's a lot of pressure on women in particular, but anyone in a minority to do the work, do the re-traumatising work of telling stories in order to, um, in any sort of hope of fixing the situations that we keep finding ourselves in. Um, so I kind of hoped that by putting myself in a community it would be healing to me, but that it would also help readers see that even though we're going to we're going through all this stuff, there are people out there batting for you. You know, there are people out there doing the work um, that may be hideous at the time, and it was I certainly had moments that were uh, re-traumatizing writing the book, um, but that there are people out there who have your back and who are fiercely advocating for change. That's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is dealing with the re-traumatisation while writing the book. And I think, yeah, it has been a, it has been a very difficult week or few weeks in, in watching the news and paying attention to that. But there's also been a sense I've felt of um, community and solidarity around mm. that. But that would be quite different when you're writing a book because that's so much by yourself, the yeah. actual process. So what was that process of looking at trauma while writing? Uh, I mean, when you write, you... Um, oh, God, what a, a wanker thing to say. Um, <laughs> when I was sitting there writing, uh, you know, you spend so much time at your desk by yourself and uh, you know, I live in a quite a small apartment. My desk is in my living room up in a corner. Um, and so it can feel really isolating and especially when you're talking about, like you're writing about those sorts of experiences. Um, the number one thing that got me through it was the fact uh, that my psychologist deserves a purple heart. Um, she is phenomenal and um, was really great at sort of counselling me through this time of going back over those experiences and validating all of the pain that I was feeling looking back on it. Um, I also have a very, like, quite a strict... Um, daily routine as a result of my disability um, where I don't... I, I write sort of from, like, nine till two with some breaks in there. Um, and then I don't... The only work I do after that is reading. Um, that, yeah, five, five hours a day is... I cap out at that, really. Um, so, and then I will relax for a bit. If it's warm enough, I'll go for a swim. If not, I'll go for a long walk, you know, like just kind of leave my apartment and kind of make some space away from that. Um, and that was really important. And I found that on the days where I wasn't able to do that, if the weather was awful or for whatever other reason, I really struggled and... Um, as difficult as, uh, or as eye-rolly as I can be sometimes when people say, oh, go and get some exercise. Um, 
it was really important. Yeah. Just the, like, the, even just the physical leaving my apartment, going outside, um, in order to put a hard break on the day of we are no longer thinking about the old Ra and all of the ghosts that live there. Um, but now we are thinking about the sand and the ocean and really kind of consciously thinking about all the calming things um, that are in the... that I could hear and sense while I was kind of getting that movement in for the day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the section that you read to us, you also spoke about uh, diagnoses. And in the book, you write that you were diagnosed with endometriosis and other pelvic issues at 28. You became disabled at 34 and were diagnosed with bipolar 2 at 35. Yeah. And you write, what a diagnosis does offer is a shared experience, an escape from the loneliness and isolation of illness without explanation and entrance into community. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about someone offering you these words to describe yourself and then claiming them and then what it meant to find yourself in these or, and, and find your place and make your place in these chronic illness and disability communities. Um, each, the endometri endometriosis diagnosis wasn't a surprise. It was something that I had been advocating for a long time. Um, that I was highly suspicious that that was what was going on. Um, but when, it, when my chronic pain got to the point of disability um, and certainly when I was diagnosed with bipolar 2, they, they were both like really kind of... They were really challenging um, moments in my life to kind of, it was really difficult to process. Um, and were it not for people reaching out to me, um, offering me that kind of sense of community, I don't think I, I think I would have struggled for a lot longer. Yeah. Um, I'm still kind of slowly finding my way in the disability community. I have to say it's not always the easiest to navigate. Um, but I am very much in a community of people with chronic illness. And um, if you are here and you uh, are kind of finding your way in, the chronically fully sick girls are... Uh, absolutely wonderful people um, and they run a podcast and a Facebook group um, that is a salve and also just an absolute um, saver of lives um, but bipolar was really challenging again it was something I was I had suspected but um, I had also uh, taking on other people's um, uh, stigmas. Yes, stigma. Thank you. Um, and so it took. It has taken me a long time to process it. Um, and I have a couple of friends who have it, and they have just been wonderful in reaching out. Um, but. I guess what helped me also during those kind of really isolating moments of not feeling really new to things were um, the representations of things that I was seeing in pop culture. And I was like really um, making conscious effort to look for instances of bipolar in particular um, out in out in the world and found a few examples um, that really helped me see it in a different light uh, and that um, it became a way of kind of 
literally visualising something that is invisible. Um, and it was, it was so important to me and so useful to me that that was something that I wanted to share and a big driver for writing the book. Yeah. Um, you, you were just saying that you had suspected endometriosis for a long time and a lot of uh, issues that primarily affect women have a long history of being ignored and women's pain has a history of being ignored and young people are told that heavy and painful periods are normal and they should just take an ibuprofen and use a heat pack. Um, but we do know that that's not normal. And you're part of an interesting group of writers who are really starting to look at these issues. I'm thinking of books like Gabrielle Jackson's Pain and Prejudice and uh, Abby Norman's Ask Me About My Uterus. And I was wondering if you could talk about the role of personal narratives in this space um, and what you hope your book gives to other people struggling with this pain but also to healthcare workers who would come across people with these issues in their work? Mm. Um, so, as we mentioned right at the front, I sort of do detail some um, experiences I had that were really difficult and really scarring to me um, with uh, specialists and with doctors and... I recently found out that uh, some local gynaecologists here in Adelaide were recommending my book to patients who were being diagnosed with endometriosis. And it was just like such a 180, I nearly spun out of control. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I really wanted to... I wanted to find... I, essentially, I wrote this book for a younger version of myself. And I knew that there were so many people like me who were out there really struggling um, f to get diagnosis, to get um, adequate care, and to feel like they weren't alone in these sorts of experiences. Um, and so that, again, is like a big part of using visual references is to... Um, paint a picture of that rather than um, relying on words alone. Um, what's a bit of your question I haven't answered? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what, what do you hope health healthcare workers get out of a book like this? And not just in the sort of sense of recommending it, mm. but for themselves. Mm. Um, yeah, what I, I wanted them to realise just how much illness infiltrates every moment of every day. Um, and so there is a couple of chapters here that are in a much more sort of social justice space where I talk about housing and retirement and uh, financial safety nets, um, which are all things that I have been thinking about since my sort of early to mid-30s, which I don't think other people my age think about at least to the extent that I have been thinking about them because uh, I have to think about them um, because I need to be setting myself up earlier. So I wanted to kind of really advocate for the fact that doctors were not and specialists were not just um, providing sort of band-aid solutions for that one problem at the one time, but they were offering a holistic form of care across a person's whole life. Um, because I think, uh, you know, there are absolutely horrific um, uh, statistics about the number of women who are homeless, the number of women who are um, on the border of poverty and are on the border of moving into homelessness um, from their 50s onwards in particular, um, and no one's talking about it. And I don't have any savings and I can't afford to buy a house or have any of those other safety nets that 
we rely so much upon in our culture um, and I can't afford to do those things because all of my money goes on um, healthcare. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to really kind of open up the conversation around illness. I've really felt like we had reached a point where we we all know, I think more, at least a far greater number of people now know what endometriosis is or they know roughly that it's... Um, uh, roughly that it's a thing that you should know about at least. <laughs> um, but I was more interested in, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? Like, what are we... Uh, what We need to be moving this conversation forward rather than just keep getting stuck in a loop of awareness. We need to move into research. We need to look into, yeah more of a kind of the social justice around um, people with uh, chronic illnesses more broadly as well. So would you, when you call yourself disabled and you use that to describe yourself and the way you operate in the world, is that also a political description? Yes. Um, it's one that took me a while to get used to. Um, but it's now, yeah, I do find it quite empowering now. Um, and I think people, I think often in our, in our society, people are still a bit dismissive of illnesses in, yeah, you're sick, but I mean, it can't be that bad. But when you can say, it's so bad that I am disabled, uh, then people kind of pulled up on themselves a bit more. Um, but also it then... Uh, I'm so inspired by people like Stella, the late Stella, Stella Young um, and disability advocates who have fought for people like me and I hope that I can join a movement of people, disabled people, fighting for the next generation. And I don't, I think, I, I think millennials have failed Gen X in a number of ways, but I hope that we can uh, at least kind of um, help change cultures like these a little for the better. And you just said then that people can be quite dismissive and it's a good way to describe that and the subtitle of the book is living with invisible illness but it's also it's not always invisible like this is a very visible way of of talking about illness you're up here in front of people you've written a book that says it but then there are also just these little signifiers in your life like you write about being sober and mm. which in our generation and our day and age can be quite countercultural. Mm. <laughs> so, do you want to talk a bit about <laughs> sobriety, but also the way that that sort of marks you as other? When sometimes you do want to talk about having your illnesses, and sometimes you don't. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I one of the chapters that carries quite um, a lot of content warnings is one where I talk about drug and alcohol misuse um, that I turned to as a way of self-medicating when doctors weren't... Um, uh, doctors hadn't diagnosed um, uh, my mental illness or mental illnesses um, and they weren't taking my pain seriously. Um, and then... Uh, and it caught, there was sort of two years in particular that were a bit of a mess. Um, and then uh, it was the end of that came um, when I had had my most recent laparoscopy um, and then a few weeks later ended up back in hospital. Um, and uh, my mum, hi mum, um, uh, 
I was living in Melbourne at the time, flew over to be with me and, it, you know, it was a very um, difficult moment in my life and we were trying... Uh, I was uh, assigned a pain specialist for the first time in my life um, and they medicated me properly for the first time in my life and we talked about... Um, incorporating physio and a number of other measures uh, that have been incredibly helpful and would have been incredibly helpful 20 years earlier. <laughs> um, but it was at that point where I really felt like uh, if, if, if they are taking me seriously, I want to take this seriously and I want them to see that I am taking it seriously. Um, and it was a real, like, kind of self-slap-in-the-face moment of, no, I don't want I, I to do this anymore. And I could see the damage that I was doing to myself as well. Um, and even, even though I've had some real issues with my mental illnesses between then and now, uh, I haven't drunk since... Uh, about midway through 2017. Um, and it is strange... It's strange in that... Um, I mean, I still have some tricky moments where... Uh, uh, <laughs> I've borrowed the phrase from comedian Maria Bamford, but when the shit ideas start firing off in my brain, um, they start... Hey, they those guys would really like a gin and tonic. Um, but for the most part, uh, I feel really comfortable in it until I go on a date uh, and ask for a soda water and that becomes a thing that people want to talk about um, because we have this culture of just uh, when we're not 100% comfortable, we turn to alcohol. Um, and, yeah, it is often really a way of outing myself, of saying that I don't drink. And I often just say I don't drink because I'm on medication that's not a good idea for me to drink at the same time, um, which is true, but also I could drink a little bit and probably be fine, but it's, it's a concerted decision that I have made um, in order to prioritise my my mental health, um, but yeah, it's hard. It's a. I still find it a little bit surprising of the things that people find visible and the the mm -hmm. things that I think are very visible that they don't notice whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Um. A really big part of the book is popular culture. And I think it's such an honest way to look at how we navigate the world and there can often be a temptation to pretend that we're made of higher stuff and that we are just references to Frida Kahlo. But um, among other things, Kylie's book references Golden Girls, Gracie and Frankie, Sally Rooney, Taylor Swift, The Handmaid's Tale. Can you talk a bit about how culture influences the way that you walk through the world? Um, hmm. I mean, I've always been, I come from a, I come, I, my childhood was, was spent in a house full of books and with readers and so books are, books are, have always been a big part of how I see the world and I think when I was, Growing up, um, you know, Judy Bloom and um, these sorts of writers who really kind of opened up my way of seeing the world beyond um, my little suburban pocket of it. Um, and... It's interesting, I recently uh, wrote a piece about 
the revival of the Babysitter's Club for Netflix and, well, it's a while ago now, but, um, and I realised just how prominent those books were on my childhood, not only in terms of um, a form of entertainment, but also a form of seeing myself and of, when I look back on it now, I can see how I have become the person I am today Mm -hmm. from those books. Um, And I think there's been a lot of that in for for me in the last sort of five years in particular. Chron- I talk I talk in the final chapter about chronic illness and disability and mental illness. They're not you don't just get a diagnosis and then you take the meds and then that's it. it it's always a cyclical thing. There will always be pain flares. There will always be triggers that. Um, mean you need to revisit um, the treatment of mental illness and uh, perhaps go back to therapy for a while or whatever. Um, And so with each of these sorts of waves, I'm going through that childhood process all over again. And so um, Lady Dynamite, which is a series by Maria Bamford, was really um, useful for me in seeing a woman in her early 40s, which is not that much older than I am now. Um, the, show, the show opens with her returning from having um, been hospitalised um, with a, um, a severe hypermanic episode... And she goes back into her agent's office and she's like, I just want just enough work to pay my bills and not get stressed out. And, of course, her agent and boss and all these people are completely like, well, how, how does that even work? <laughs> you, um, which is something that you realise when you uh, live in a space of illness and disability is that actually capitalism really is as stupid as everyone makes it out to be because you know <laughs> you know I need to work 60 hour weeks um uh but yeah so these the characters with bipolar in particular were really useful but I also have always been a person who I see I watch a movie once or a hundred times and um <laughs> I think that's quite um, manic in itself, really. Um, and so when I am really struggling, I will watch Maria Bamford, Old Baby, uh, Silver Linings Playbook, which I talk about in the book. Um, I'll watch may- maybe John Mulaney specials. Um, but the two that I go for the most are Old Baby and Silver Linings Playbook, which are, um, or sometimes 28 Days, Sandra Bullock, classic. Um, because these are visual instances of people who have sort of picked themselves up from uh, the difficulties of bipolar and kind of got themselves back into not a place that is not without issue, but one where they are very aware of what they need to do to look after themselves um, and they are safe. They're in a place that is safe. Um, And so it's it's no coincidence that, you know, you put a big jumper on, put a dressing gown on, (laughs) get a little snack, make a cup of peppermint tea, (laughs) like... Um, start watching those and they uh, it's a big part of how I look after myself yeah. is to uh, is to engage in pop culture that looks like me sounds like me um, I was just telling you before that I'm reading a book called A Room Called Earth by Madeline Ryan which is just out this week through Scribe She's a neurodiverse author and her 
protagonist is also neurodiverse um, and it's the book is set one night of her of this character going to a party where she doesn't really know anyone and reading this character I was like this feels like a native tongue that I didn't know ever existed like um, it's been really it's been quite the revelation um, and so yeah like I'm quite you know, in my work as a writer and a critic, I watch a lot of pop culture anyway. Um, but I also... It's really important for me in terms of, yeah, feeling feeling like I'm not the only one going through this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to open up for questions in a moment. There's a microphone in the middle, uh, in the middle aisle, if anyone would like to line up and ask a question. Uh, before while we wait for people to get to the microphone, you launched the book during the pandemic mm. um, and you had a small book launch here, but you didn't do any of the tours or the big events that sort of would normally come with a book like this. Um, but a lot of what you write about is about fatigue and about mm. resting. Mm. And so what did it mean for you to watch the world change in ways that made it more accessible to you? Oh, it was wild. Um... Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate to be able to have a little party with my family and friends and loved ones to say thank, basically thank you for getting me to this point. Thank you for, to be completely honest, thank you for keeping me alive so that I could have this, so I could offer you this finger food. Um, <laughs> I, the start of COVID was incredibly difficult um, on my brain, um, the uncertainty of it, um, which, you know, every, it was difficult for everyone in that way. Um, but I, being quite sensitive, you know, found that quite difficult. Um, I also um, am constantly, mm, this is... Sorry, Mum. I'm constantly in fear of the safety of my mum and my brother, who are the two most important people in my life. Um, and uh, not knowing... When we didn't know, like, how fast the virus was spreading and who was going to be more at risk and all this kind of stuff, that, um, that was really upsetting... But once everything kind of settled, there were a lot of conversations in the chronic illness community of, like, lockdown is really similar to how we live our life all the time. And so why, why weren't people asking us how to deal with this? Or why, like, why didn't, why didn't it occur to people um, to ask us how to how to cope in circumstances like this. Um, but then suddenly I got to work at home for the first time, despite asking to do so for, for like for the last eight years or something. Um, there were, yeah, a lot more online events, which were both good and bad because Zoom is exhausting and like, thank <laughs> goodness we don't have to deal with it as much anymore. Um, and yeah, it's really fatiguing it's a different type of fatigue, that kind of visual engagement. But it meant that despite, you know, my friends in Melbourne being in lockdown, they could view um, a, an event I did with imprints um, and, they, yeah, people could kind of connect on a different level. But it was also... It was really strange having expectations kind of change constantly. Like, it, it would... One day I'll go to Melbourne and I'll go into some shops and sign some books and that'll be great. Um, that's probably not going to happen for a while yet. Um, so it's been... I'm In lots of ways, I'm glad this has been my first book in the way that I'm experiencing it because I had no real expectations as to what I was meant to do. Um, so... 
Um, yeah, it's been weird. It's been good. I feel very privileged to have got through it, even though it was very difficult to get through it. You know, all the all the things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I'll take question now. Thanks. Well, you just absolutely answered the question I was going to ask. Oh. So <laughs> I'll just go ahead and say I'm really happy you're here on the stage today. Thank you, Heather. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I missed the beginning of your talk. Sorry. It's <laughs> fine. I'm stuck in traffic. Um, I've had problems since 2000, and I'm seen as pain specialist on 16th of March. Did, would you advise that? I heard you mention that you'd seen one. Um, the question was about having pain and whether to go to a pain specialist, if that is something that I would advise, and I would advise yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a holistic type of care okay. that is not. Uh, and they, I've you know recently had a um, review with one where they were like. No, you're doing all the things, and I, I can't give you any more meds than you're already on. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's also good to know that. Like, it's good to know, like, a bit of a state of the union kind of yeah. situation. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Thank yeah. you. No worries. <laughs> and congratulations. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, just on that, if there's anyone here who um, has... Uh, endometriosis or suspects that they do any kind of pelvic pain issue we are incredibly lucky to live in the best state in the country for um, pelvic care and uh, the pelvic pain network SA are all incredible um, specialists and they um, are all worth seeing and the, the work of the Pelvic Pain Foundation Australia which is based here um, is also great and I would um, uh, recommend that you seek them out if you need to but they are also doing some incredible work in schools um, uh, providing education on what is a normal period what is not a normal period what to look for um, when you're in pain and to kind of, yeah, kind of really help, I think, not only young people but also parents of young people know the parameters that they should be looking for and what they can do to help um, in, in situations where it is beyond taking a Nurofen and having a little lie down. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, Kylie. I'm, I'm uh, trying to work out how to ask you this question, so excuse me while I just process while I'm talking. It's OK. Um, so, so I have an invisible disability, and many experiences in your book were like, yes, 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 yes. Um, it led me to actually go six years and become a neuroscientist to actually look at my... Uh, my situation. Not the book. Like, her, her, her experience. <laughs> no, no, my own, my own experience. Yeah. So it actually led me to go and investigate my own after, and took me six years to look at neuroscience. And one of the things I'm really interested in was this use of the word re-traumatising um, in terms of not only being asked or experiencing in the in the social fabric incidents and items that resonate for you. But in terms of re-traumatising in your process of writing the book, but also in now being public with the book and talking about it, mm. what I'm interested in about that notion of re-traumatising is that we know that when a memory is drawn back, that in a sense, yes, we are living it fresh in the sense, but also not because mm. it's not the same memory. Because by becoming present with it, it in a sense gets anewed. 
And my question I'm now at <laughs> is, in your experience of being public with the book, as opposed to the private solitude of writing the book, have you found moments in bringing up those incidents of finding, of in anewing those memories, finding schisms or cracks that have enabled some lightness or some uh, relief and or some necessary positive change in, in that memory then being re, resettled. If, does that make sense? Yeah. I think something that something that I have been thinking about recently is that in each of the instances, despite whether uh, I talk about one specialist in particular in the book who was an absolute nightmare. I call him Dr. Bowtie because he was like the actual, you know, cartoon version of a specialist who wore bow ties and tweed jackets with the leather elbows. Oh, thing. Um, and he was awful. Um, but in thinking through those situations and uh, a close friend rem reminded me recently of another surgery that I had had where I'd been living with her. Something that I have remembered which I, when I first started thinking about them, all like the first thing that came to me was the pain and the feeling like I hadn't been understood. But in rethinking about it and talking about it, um, not so much with my 200 of my closest friends here, but um, <laughs> her, with readers, is that I've had... In each of these instances, no matter how bad they've been, I've been incredibly fortunate to have people with me uh, who care about me and who have advocated for me, whether that's my mum or close friends, uh, even just um, nursing staff who have been incredibly empathetic um, and... That's been really actually quite a healing thing to, to think about. Um, and now makes me think I could go through another difficult situation, but my brain now knows that even if that happens, you will always have someone there with you. Uh, and that's been... Um, that's been... A really lovely outcome. Yeah. So thank you for that question. I hadn't I actually hadn't put that all together. Yeah. I've got time for one last question. If you'd be pretty brief, that yes, would be great. Yes. <laughs> Collie, I'd like to say thank you very much for your courage in getting mm. up today and expressing what a lot of people can't. Thank you. I want to ask this question in the context of my work as a mental health nurse. Mm. Um, research has shown that a lot of women are suffering endometriosis as a result of either their own uh, personal abuse or their mother's personal abuse, particularly when pregnant with sufferers later. Abuse what of what, sorry? Uh, their experience of domestic violence. Oh, right, OK. Yes, and, and personal abuse. It right. often happens when a mother's carrying a daughter and she will often exhibit a very, very significant symptoms of endometriosis as she's growing up. So I'm just going to ask you if you could comment on your experience of knowing whether there's many sufferers here that have experienced abuse such as that? Whew. Uh, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read on it. I certainly will now go and read on it. I think that's fascinating. Um, I don't think we know enough. We, don't, we certainly don't know enough about where endo comes from. There's no... We don't, yeah, we don't know where it comes from. There's no treatment. There's no cure. We just kind of um, do the best we can to chip away at it and it will inevitably grow back. Um, 
I think, uh, I mean, there's um, quite a famous book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, which talks about um, the links between trauma and uh, and the way it's stored in your body. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, but I don't know enough. I don't know enough to answer that question. I know that I have lived experience with domestic violence, um, but I had endometriosis symptoms far be- far before that had happened. Um, but yeah, I'm very intrigued by it, and I will certainly go and read about about it. And thank you for being a mentor. A uh, healthcare nurse, which is uh, not a not an enviable job by any means, but an incredibly necessary one, particularly in the last twelve months. So, thank you. Yeah. Uh, could everyone please uh, join me in thanking Kylie for such a beautiful panel? Thank you. Thank you so much for coming.